so as Chip mentioned, we're starting a new sermon series this morning, and the name of this series is Resolved. And uh, we're going to look at how Jesus was resolved to go to Jerusalem and to accomplish our salvation. Uh, and as you'll see in just a few minutes, we're going to start in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel in verse 51, and we're going to follow that all the way through Easter Sunday, and we're just going to take this journey with Jesus to Jerusalem, and we're going to see uh, why he was resolved, what that's all about, and uh, perhaps what we can learn from that experience. But when you think about someone being resolved, uh, what kind of words come to mind? I think of words like determination or someone who has tenacity, and they're going to they're stick with it to the very end, a doggedness, a, a st- excuse me, a steadfastness that, you know, whatever it is, it just, they can't let go. Uh, when I think of my generation, I think of people who exemplify that off the athletic field, because clearly those are obvious examples of someone who's an Olympic pole vaulter. They had to be resolved, you know, pretty early on in life to accomplish that. But, but people who are, who are concerned about the social well-being Uh, of our culture. And obviously this weekend, we are celebrating and still mourning the loss of Dr. Martin Luther King. And and I think about his determination, not just for individual issues, but but for, you know, the big picture of biblical justice and mercy uh, and equality. And so I went back and I did some reading and some of the things that he had written. And I want to read for you a paragraph out of a letter that he had written, had written to uh, several other pastors and so it's a lengthy paragraph, but it's only a paragraph. But what I would like for you to, to listen for is listen for his resolve. Listen for his determination. Listen kind of for his, hey, we've got to stick with this. So uh, Dr. King writes, I had also hoped that the white moderate would reject the myth concerning time in relation to the struggle for freedom. I've just received a letter from a white brother in Texas. He writes, all Christians know that colored people will receive equal rights eventually but it is possible that you are in too great a religious hurry. It has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth. Then Dr. King goes on. Such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time, from the strangely irrational notion that there's something that in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more, I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of good will. Um, we, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for hateful words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. Now is the time for national elegy to, uh, excuse me, now is the time to make real the promise of democracy and transform our pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. 
there's a person who is determined. There's a person who is going to really get after it uh, until the very end. And what we're going to see in the life of Jesus, beginning in Luke chapter 9, is that dogged determination. But what we're going to have to look carefully for is, is what's he after? And why is he after it? And what on earth does that have to do with me? We're going to look at three passages this morning, all relatively short. Uh, Isaiah 50, Luke chapter 9, starting verse 51, and Hebrews chapter 12, the first three verses. Hear the word of God as is found in Isaiah the prophet. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Then Luke writes in his gospel, when the days drew near for him, that being Jesus, for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? All right. Where did Christians start being so loving? It started right here with, with James and John. Do you, can't you just feel the grace and the mercy and the compassion? Right. But Jesus, what? He turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And then the author of Hebrews writes the following. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endures from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together for a moment. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to sing your praise this morning, to offer worship to the Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you come and you make our hearts alive and you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and understand the gospel. That leads us to faith and trusting in you. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for a warm building on a cold morning. We thank you that you uh, have loved us from eternity past and, and will love us into the rest of eternity. And yet, Father, we live in a broken world. We live in a world that can wear us out, that can frighten us, that can uh, do damage to uh, our love for you and our, and our care for our fellow human being. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can come here not just to sing praise, but also to ask that you would teach us, to ask that you would open our eyes to what you want us to know uh, individually as well as as a congregation. Father, we thank you for those who have gone before us and have uh, exemplified some of this determination that we're going to see in the life of our Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you saw it through to the end, because if you didn't, we wouldn't be here today. There would be no reason for us, because we would be, we would be lost, and we would be your enemies. So Lord, we come not claiming any goodness of our own, but only that which you give us through your grace, and we ask that you would teach us. Forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me be a hindrance to what you want us to know and understand and apply. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's probably fairly clear by now, but our sermon in a sentence, so it's kind of set the tone for the series is this. Jesus' resolve to redeem all who put their faith in him, let 
in him led him to the cross. So that's what we're going to be looking at for the next 12 weeks. Jesus' journey from uh, chapter 9, verse 51, all the way through the end of Luke's gospel to the cross and ultimately the resurrection, right? But it also serves as, as an example for his disciples to follow. So if you're here this morning and you're a disciple of Jesus, this tenacity, this determination is something that ought to not only grab your attention, but it should also help you see an example of how your life should follow your Lord's. And if you're here this morning, what disciples of Jesus are all about, hopefully this will begin to paint a picture for you. And we hope you'll hang out with us for a while and and explore that uh, even more. Ultimately, we would love for you to join us as a disciple of Jesus. But what we want to look at is both parts of this, the, the, the part of Jesus' tenacity that led him to the cross, and then what uh, can we learn from that. I'm going to give you three observations about this steadfastness this morning. The first is the place of Jesus' resolve. The second is the task of Jesus' resolve. And the third is the outcome of Jesus' resolve. So let's dive in. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verses, uh, verse 51, is a fulcrum, it's a tipping point, it's a hinge in the Gospel of Luke that takes you from one uh, main thought that the author has to a second main thought that he has as he tracks the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 9, through the end of Luke, is actually the bulk of Luke's Gospel, but it takes up the least amount of time. It's actually the last couple months of Jesus' life. Up till Luke chapter 9, Luke has been basically introducing us to Jesus. He's been telling us about his claims as Savior and Lord, and he's been telling us some of the experiences of Jesus' life that reinforce those claims that challenge us to see him as such, as Savior and Lord. Now Luke turns a corner, and he's going to say, let's take a walk, and our walk's going to take us to Jerusalem and to the cross and to the resurrection. So we're going to Jerusalem with Jesus. That's very clear. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, if the next little bullet point wasn't under there, if you just had the verse, it actually sounds pretty nice. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Don't we all want to be taken up? I mean, doesn't that sound kind of pleasant? Doesn't that sound kind of delightful? You know, what was that fifth dimension song? Now I'm really dating myself. Wouldn't you like the ride in my beautiful balloon, right? And more recently, the movie Up, where the guy goes in the balloon and saves the day, right? So it just sounds so lovely. But the facts are that where Jesus was going was not lovely. It was the stronghold of his enemies. It was the place where they had the most control and the most power. The temple was in Jerusalem. Therefore, the religious leaders of the Jewish nation were in Jerusalem. This would be like saying, I am really, really, really anti-Catholic, so I'm going to Vatican City, right? It just, it doesn't quite make a whole lot of sense that you go into your enemy's stronghold. Look at John's gospel, and it's gonna be on the screen, where there are a couple of instances where Jesus is in Jerusalem talking to these enemies, and look at the outcomes of these conversations. Jesus said to the religious leaders, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's a way of Jesus saying, I am God in the flesh, right? How did they react? They picked up stones to throw at him. Literally, they wanted to kill him, right? But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Again, John 10, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. John chapter 11. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and they said, what are we going to do? If we let him go on, the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. And Caiaphas, who's the high priest, I actually took a whole bunch of verses in John 11. I kind of squished them together, right? Caiaphas, the high priest, said to them, you know nothing at all, right? 
Don't you love it when a person starts out a conversation with you like that? You don't know anything, right? Nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Jesus is going to the stronghold of his enemies. This would be like me going over into Webster Groves the day before Thanksgiving and standing on Main Street waving a red and white Kirkwood flag. It just doesn't make sense. When you go to Bush Stadium and it's a a series against the Cubs, you know who the Cubs fans are. They show up with their caps and their jerseys. If you've ever gone to Wrigley Field, I've been there twice. I wore my Cardinals hat both times. You got to kind of look over your shoulder, right? And hopefully it's a lot of fun, but you're in enemy territory. You, You know that. It's, it's, it's different than being at home with people that love you. So our youngest son, Jordan, has a wonderful job, makes a, makes a good living, and is not married, is not dating anybody, has no children, has no obligations of that sort. So he has a few nickels in his pocket from time to time. And he travels for work. So he has a million miles on planes and he has a million hotel nights for free. So he and one of his best friends from high school, a guy named Jason, decided last November they were going to combine a skiing trip along with fishing for sturgeon, which I don't have time to go into this morning, along with watching blues hockey games. So they go to Western Canada and they go to Calgary, or if you're from Canada, they go to Calgary, right? And then they go to Edmonton and then they go to Vancouver. And so I asked him, I said, how were the people when you walked in the stadium with your blue sweater on? He said, well, in Calgary, everybody was like, oh, so great to see you. Tell, you know, how come you came all the way up here? You know, it's almost like they invited us over their house afterwards, right? So then we got to Edmonton. It was a little edgier. You know, people were kind of looking at us and kind of ribbing us a little bit, but they were still kind of nice. But then we went to Vancouver. He's like, dad, oh my gosh, those people were not happy to see us at all. Now, I am pretty confident that Nobody in this room knows the outcome of that game in mid-November in Vancouver, except maybe John Powers might. Bethy does? The Blues won that? How do you know that? Because you work with me. That's exactly that. that, 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 that. Oh, I did put it on Facebook. That's right. Okay. So uh, the Blues are going to win the Stanley Cup someday. Let's have a moment of silence. Okay. Um, so... I'm watching this game on TV, and I've, and I've watched it all three games. I haven't seen Jordan anywhere. And the Blues, uh, the game's tied, 3-3, and it goes into overtime, and the Blues win in overtime. And I, I'm watching TV, and I see something out of the corner of my eye. And I back it up, and I watch it again, and it's slower. And then I back it up, and I kind of do a still frame thing, and I freeze it on this, on this spot on the TV, all right? Now, clearly the Blues have scored a goal because it says goal, and you see all the guys in the white sweaters hugging each other. This is like two seconds after the game is over. Look in the crowd. Do you see a couple guys with blue sweaters on? Yeah. Which way are they facing? (laughs) Okay. Number 20 is my son, Jordan, right? And number 55 is his friend, Jason Kazeel, and they're running for their lives. (laughs) Okay. They're like, we got to get out of the stadium quick. And it wasn't just to beat the traffic, okay? Because people were going to get a line. You don't go into your enemy's house unless you're prepared for a fight, right? Jesus is resolved not to go watch a hockey game someplace. He's going to Jerusalem where people who want to kill him live. Therefore, he also knows it's not just an enemy stronghold, but it is a place of persecution. His enemies are not passive in this relationship. They're very active. We've already pointed to that, but let me give you a passage out of Matthew chapter 12. Jesus went from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And again, I've kind of shrunk this passage down. And they, the religious leaders, say to Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? 
right? And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus is going to a place of active persecution, but Jesus also knows ultimately he's going to the place of his death. Look at Luke chapter 9, earlier than the verse that we read this morning. Jesus is warning his disciples. He's speaking about himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then again, a little bit later in the chapter. While they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink in to your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus knew the place of his resolve was also the place of his death, and he went anyway. Why is that? Because he had a task to do. Let's go back to Isaiah's passage for just a minute. Isaiah says, the Lord God helps me. A couple things here about that first phrase in this verse. Clearly, there's something that needs to be done. There is a task. There's an effort. There, there's something that needs to happen. There's something crucial that must be done. The reason we know it's crucial is because the Lord God helps me. The prophet is speaking to something that is so big and so difficult that it couldn't possibly be done without the power of God. So he says, the Lord helps me, therefore... I have not been disgraced. The second part about this task is that it's going to bring the person who's working on the task into the contempt of others. People are going to, are going to despise this person. They're going to look down on this person simply because of the task that they are seeking to accomplish. I don't know if you've ever been looked down by, from someone else, but in an active way. It doesn't feel very good. To have people think you're foolish, or people think you're naive, or people think that you're, that you're just plain dumb. But if you've ever had that experience, you know that, that it's a little bit uncomfortable. I was talking with a gentleman about six years ago. He's a medical doctor. He's an acquaintance. I wouldn't say a friend, but an acquaintance. And we were having a conversation about the question of abortion. And we're having a question, uh, conversation specifically about the morality of the issue. Is there a right, and is there a wrong? And the doctor was saying very confidently, that it's up to the individual. That, of course, people have a moral compass, but some people's moral compass points that way, and some people's moral compass point that way. And the worst thing that we could do as a culture is say, no, the compass points one direction. There is a right and there is a wrong. And I said, well, my, my problem with that is that you're saying that individuals have the ability and the wherewithal to make the very best decision every time and that they can be their own moral compass. And I don't believe that for one second. And I began to bring theology into the conversation. And I began to talk about how there is a moral compass, but it's not man-made. It comes from God. And he was deeply offended and appalled that I would bring theology into this conversation. And I could tell the split second that the disdain started. I could see it on his face. And he was looking at me as an intellectual inferior. He was looking at me almost in pity that I didn't understand the depth of the issue. It wasn't a positive, pleasant experience in my life. But Jesus was going to get that times a billion. Jesus was going to be involved in a task that literally led him to be appalled. And, and, and people would be appalled and so offended by him that they would nail him to a cross. But Jesus knew something else. He knew that he was not going to be disgraced. Therefore, I set my face like flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. But if we read the Gospels, Jesus was put to shame. Jesus did suffer 
abuse. He did suffer indignation. How could the prophet say that? Did the prophet get that wrong? Well, only if we think that Jesus' understanding of the cross is limited, and it is not, because Jesus is God. And he knew that while he would be abused, and while he would suffer at the cross, there was also something much bigger going on, and that was the providence and the plan of God. And ultimately, it was God's opinion of his task that mattered most. What was God's opinion of Jesus' task? Let me take you to Philippians chapter 2, speaking about Jesus. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, how does God respond? The Father. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus understood that the Father was going to accept his task as complete. And it was going to put him in the place of glory, which is going to lead eventually to the outcome that we're going to get to in a minute. But Jesus understood this about his task. So it didn't matter what man said. It didn't matter who was with him and who was against him. It's why he looked at James and John and he said, have you lost your minds? I'm not here to kill people. I'm here to redeem people. And it's why when, when Pilate said to him, are you the Christ? He said, yep, it's as you've said, right? He saw his task. He understood the, 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 the momentary pain and suffering and he resolved to do it anyway. And praise God for that because he also understood the outcome which directly impacts you and me and every other person in history. Jesus' resolve was founded on a bigger picture. Jesus' resolve was not to go show us how a good man dies. It wasn't to say, well, I really need to back up what I've preached all these years. But Jesus knew there was a fundamentally a much larger problem with mankind and that we were broken by our sin and our rebellion against God and that we were not inclined to fix it, nor would we ever try to fix it. We would gladly go to hell and be away from God for all of eternity if he would just leave us alone. And if God didn't intervene in that, that would be the end of the story. And Jesus said, it's not going to turn out that way. And so the author of Hebrews writes gloriously. By the way, if you want to memorize scripture and you've never done it before, start with these three verses, all right? A couple of reasons. One is the author of Hebrews. We're not sure who he was, but he was the most, like, the one of the most highly educated authors of the New Testament. His Greek is, is spotless. It is glorious. And it actually even flows in the English. But secondly, these are really great verses to know uh, because you, you're going to need them. And you'll see that by the time we get through this, right? So the author of Hebrews writes, let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Who is he? The founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus knew that we needed salvation. He knew that he was providing salvation for all who would believe. And so he was the founder and he was the perfecter of our faith. In other words, he saw something more glorious that could be on the horizon if he would accomplish his task. I want to take you back to Dr. King for just a moment and read you the last paragraph of the letter to which I've already referred. It's shorter than the first paragraph. But listen now, not for the determination so much, but listen for the big picture understanding. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or as a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, 
the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. There was a man who understood the big picture. It wasn't just about uh, the trash collectors in Memphis getting a fair wage. It wasn't just about the cessation of blowing up churches in Alabama. It wasn't just about voting rights in Mississippi, but all of that spoke to a deeper and more, more profound issue, the question of human dignity. And he saw the big picture and was able to speak to that. And I would argue that he was following the example of Jesus. Jesus understood the big picture. He understood that he needed to found and perfect this faith so that we could put our trust in him. He also understood that there was a prize to be won, right? In, in our office, we do, we, we do games every once in a while. And it's, this such competition just comes out in all of us because it's, it's all about the prize, right? Well, look at what this says about Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was the joy that impacted Jesus so much so that he would, that he would scorn the cross? That he would say that the cross is nothing compared to the, the joy I receive. Well, there are a lot of times in sermons when we talk about sin and, and we acknowledge the fact that we like to pretend like we don't sin very much and other people sin a lot more than us, right? And we also like to kind of, kind of shift the blame and say, you know, if, if my spouse didn't do this, then, then I certainly wouldn't have done that because fundamentally I'm a really good person. My spouse, not so much, right? Or my parents or my kids, if they had just acted differently, then I wouldn't have felt the need to express my righteous indignation. And we excuse our sin and we place the blame on others. And so I've always said, if you want to know the, the, the sin issue in your marriage, or in your household, or in your business, go buy a mirror and look at it. And when you look at that mirror, you'll be looking at the sin problem in your life. It's you, it's not the people around you. It's me, it's not my wife, it's not my kids, it's not anybody else, it's me. Tom Ricks needs to think about Tom Ricks. The opposite is true also. When you wanna know what the joy is that was set before Jesus, why would he go through all of this? Listen carefully, because. Most of us don't believe this in the depths of our souls. Go get a mirror and see what's looking back at you. You're the joy. Your life, your soul, your dignity as a human being was so precious to Jesus. And he saw it as the prize he could win. Your life redeemed for all of eternity was the joy set before him. Take great consolation this morning, brothers and sisters, and the fact that that's how Jesus feels about you, if you are his, if you belong to him through faith. Jesus also understood that his right relationship with his father would be restored, right? He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His father would say to him, well done, son. And we've already looked at that in Philippians chapter two, come take your rightful place. But lastly, under this notion of outcome, Jesus also understood that we would need help. I love the way this verse ends because it so accurately describes me and a lot of other people I know who are, who are disciples. Consider him, that being Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart or be faint-hearted. Do you ever feel weary and faint-hearted as a follower of Jesus? If you've been a Christian for more than a couple hours, you probably have. And if you just became a Christian, uh, it'll, it'll happen, right? The thief on the cross, in some respects, was like the luckiest guy in the world because he only lived for a couple more hours and then he was with Jesus, right? But for many of us, it's a life 
long journey or it's the journey of our adult life. For some of us, we've come to Christ as children. Some of you guys are sitting here today as young folks have already put your faith in Christ. And if the Lord allows you to live 70, 80, 90 years, you got a long road ahead of you and there'll be moments of weariness. There'll be moments where you look at your own life and you go, really, am I still that bad? I still can't overcome that sin. What is my problem? There'll be times when you look at the church and you go, what is wrong with us collectively as a people? How can we possibly be so hypocritical? There are going to be moments of discouragement. There are going to be moments of despair. And what do you do when you get to those moments? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Just, just work a little bit harder? Just try and be a better person? No, you look at Jesus. And you stop and you think about it. Consider him. Dwell on him. Memorize verses about him. Spend time just reading your Bible and listening to his voice and what will happen. You won't grow weary and faint-hearted. You will be encouraged. You will be strengthened. Jesus knew the outcome. He understood that it was the big picture salvation, but he also knew that you and me would need help to get home. Therefore, he was resolved to make that outcome happen. Going to Jerusalem took resolve. Jesus taught a lot of lessons along the way. We're going to look at some of those lessons over the next 12 weeks. Discipleship is a long race, a lot of distractions, a lot of pitfalls, a lot of dangers along the way. May we be resolved, not by our own power, not by our own wisdom, our own strength, but may we resolve by God's grace and through the strength of his word and his Holy Spirit and the example of our Lord Jesus to run this race with the same resolve that inspired our Lord Jesus to go to the cross for each one of us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we praise you this morning because of your resolve, because of your faithfulness. Lord Jesus, as we think about this particular weekend and we think of tomorrow that we, uh, what we celebrate, it's clear that we're a long way from home on that topic and on that issue in our culture. I fear that if Dr. King were alive today, he would feel like it's been perhaps one step forward and two steps back, or maybe two steps forward, one step back. This issue just shows our inability to save ourselves and our inability to save our own culture, our our own communities. But Lord Jesus, your resolve changed the entire outcome. Your resolve has led to redemption and salvation. And so, Lord, we pray that we would learn from you in these coming weeks, that we would study your life carefully, and that we would recommit ourselves to the issues of our day, such as racial harmony, such as uh, the importance of marriage, uh, such as the, the, the joy and delight in sharing the gospel with other folks and growing as disciples in Jesus. But ultimately, Lord, may, may we see your resolve and understand that the outcome was our salvation. And by doing so, allow you to create a spirit of humility and grace and thankfulness in each one of our hearts that would be reflected to the world around us, where people could not only hear what we say about you, but could actually see it in our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. So the the table this morning is a wonderful representation of this resolve of Jesus, that he was willing to go all the way to the cross in order that we could have salvation. So it's an appropriate morning as we kick off the sermon series for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I will uh, remind you what Paul reminded the Corinthians when he wrote to them. And he said, I'm passing on to you what the Lord Jesus passed on to me the night in which our Lord was betrayed. 
he took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they'd eaten, he took the cup and when he poured it, he passed it to his disciples. He said, this cup represents the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. All of you drink from it. Because as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, we come to your table gladly this morning. We don't come uh, with confidence in ourselves. We come as sinners. We know we need your grace. We know we need your forgiveness. So we don't come with self-righteousness. But we come clinging to the righteousness that you have given to us through your sacrifice on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bless your people as we partake in your celebration. That as uh, you physically paid the price for us, that this morning you would spiritually be present in these elements and nourish your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite the servers, if you would please come forward, and I will serve you while I'm sharing a couple more uh, instructions with the congregation. Uh, the first thing to remember is that uh, we're going to serve you, by the way, so you can just stay seated this morning. We're going to bring the elements to you. Uh, and as they are passed to you, uh, you will take a piece of bread. The gluten-filled bread is on the top. The gluten-free is kind of tucked underneath there. Take whichever piece and then also take a cup. And if you would, please hold on to the elements. And after everybody's been served, we will partake together. Uh, but secondly, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, you're wondering about it and you're researching or you're flat out skeptical, that is great. We're, we're glad you're here. We hope you'll keep hanging out with us. But we would ask you to simply pass by the bread and the plate and the cup because uh, it really is of no value to you. You don't have to do something quote unquote religious because you're in church, uh, but rather maybe spend that time praying and saying, you know, God, if you're there, would you show yourself to me? Uh, and would you perhaps show me that you're real and that I belong to you or can belong to you through Christ? So hold on to the elements till we're all served and we will partake together. <laughs>